And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome again to the Sustainability Story. This is Matt Orsog with CFA Institute, and we have a special sustainability story. One guest wasn't enough for us, so we have two today. We have Sandy Peters, Senior Head of Global Advocacy here at CFA Institute, and also Wes Bricker, Vice Chair, U.S. Trust Solutions, Co-Leader at PwC. Hey, Sandy and Wes, good to see you. Hello. Thank you very much, Matt. All right, just briefly, uh, because we have a lot to get into, Sandy, just introduce yourself uh, and tell folks how you got here. Okay, so I lead CFA Institute's advocacy efforts related to corporate disclosure, including financial reporting, auditing and assurance, and increasingly with Matt, ESG. Prior to that, I was corporate controller of MetLife and a partner at KPMG specializing in insurance, reinsurance, and financial guarantee. And I help companies also through the public listing process while a member of KPMG's Capital Markets Group in London. So I've lived in the investor, auditor, and controller legs of the uh, disclosure stool, if you will. All right, Wes. Well, thank you. And just similar to Sandy's background, I started out as an auditor, served as an auditor, but also uh, stepped into public service where I served at the SEC for six years. A few of those years as chief accountant, served under Mary Jo White and, and Jay Clayton as a chief accountant. I also now serve as the co-leader for PwC's Trust Solutions practice, which is where we do audits. We do preparation of tax returns. We also do ESG, specialized reporting. And then I also have the privilege of serving as chair of XBRL International, which is focused on the digitization of business reporting information to improve the accessibility of information for users all around the world. People may be asking, why do you need two guests? What's so important that you need two guests and two accountants at that? Hey. Uh, <laughs> I think for our, for our first, we started this podcast in the middle of, uh, of 2021. And all, through December, we had no accountants on the podcast. And now we've had four just, you know, we're recording this the you know, second day of May in uh, 2022. So we've got to stop having accountants on. But uh, what we're doing... Today is we're talking about uh, the SEC's proposed rules around climate change disclosures, and we'll talk a little bit about other you know, other things that are happening in the world. Uh, but Sandy and I are, are in the middle of going through uh, the SEC's proposal, and we were talking to Wes. Wes. Wes's team is as well, and this is a topic that a lot of investors uh, are curious about. And so we thought it would be great to walk through things and give them the insights of professionals uh, on these on these on these issues, not just from me. So uh, before we start getting into the details, like most of my guests, I, I ask you, and I'll ask Wes first, you know, is there one number or fact or thing you think helps frame things for, for investors on this issue uh, that they should know about? So Matt, my number is 33%. 
we surveyed investors globally. 33% said they believe the quality of ESG reporting on average is good. Mm -hmm. That's an astonishingly low number for information that's used as the basis for putting money to work. That number should be much higher. And that's why we're so committed to the journey of making sure it's the right information and that the information is reliable, that it has quality. Fair enough. Sandy? Well, I don't really have one number or fact. I have one principle or perspective, I would say, and that's relativity. And it's the relative importance of this information to the investment decision-making process. So while I am an accountant, I am also a CFA, and I look after investor interests right now. And as I go through this document, I'm, I haven't decided my perspectives or our perspectives or CFA Institute's perspectives, but I'm going through a lot of questioning, a Socratic method, if you will, to decide how important this is into the investment decision-making process. And our overarching um, perspective that we're bringing to it is one of securities analysis and investment decision-making which is the heart of CFA Institute's historical perspective. And so trying to bring that perspective to the questions I'm asking myself. That's a great, that's a great start, great way to frame things. Staying kind of at the high level, uh, broadly framing things. Sandy, I'll, I'll start with you this time. As far as climate disclosures, where have we been, where are we now, and where are we going? Climate disclosures. I think we're in the middle of a big transformation, right? So. I think the question has to be looked at from both a U.S. and a global perspective because it's slightly different. So in the U.S., we've had the 2010 SEC release, which I would say that a lot of people perceived as, I won't say voluntary, but sort of a nice reminder. And and this document's maybe the current SEC proposal is more than a reminder, let's say. And so it's transforming that process. I think that, uh, jokingly, as you know, Matt, we joke with our European colleagues that they've been ahead. Mm-hmm. And I sort of say that this may be more ahead than theirs because it actually impacts the financial statements. And we'll talk about that. But I think we're in a moment where understanding what this is all about is more widely being disseminated to accountants and investors what we do with the information, how we do it, where it will be located, and how we look at this consistently across the globe is a challenge. So I don't know where we're going to end up, but we're on a journey for sure. Yeah, we'll have to come back in five years and see and have this conversation again. That's a good idea. Wes, anything to add? I I would just add uh, the perspective around trust. Trust in the quality of material information is necessary for any complex society to really function. You have to trust the information to have a longer time horizon. And so markets operate efficiently whenever there's reliable quality data that stakeholders can use to make the very important decisions that need to be reached. And when it comes to ESG disclosures, as as Sandy talked about, stakeholders are entitled to high degree of quality uh, in the information that they expect. And, and that's, that's the context, that's the setting for uh, this rule proposal as I've read it. 
Okay, you mentioned you mentioned there and, and te- teed up the next question very nicely. Uh, materiality, you know, the the question of materiality runs through all, you know, going back to when we started discussing ESG data, you know, what's materially and what's not. I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to twenty years ago to start in this field uh, at a firm, a corporate governance rating firm, and we were collecting six hundred, seven hundred pieces of data because we were just collecting everything. We were trying to figure out what was material and what wasn't material. And now, thankfully, people have a better idea, a much better idea on what is material. And you have things like SASB that's based on materiality. But materiality is running through this document and what the ISSB is doing as well and others. So give us a little kind of high-level view of, of your views on materiality. We'll, we'll deal with it when we get into the specific topics a little, little later. Uh, but just at a high level, while you start on uh, your thoughts about how materiality runs through this document. Yeah. Materiality is is a grounding concept. Uh, it it starts with the information that is required to be presented, uh, but it's also a limiting principle. It it, it limits the information that, to that information which is which is important to a decision. Uh, this this document brings forward the traditional view, which is focused on. An investor, what does an investor need in order to fundamentally do two things? One, to make a decision about an investment decision. Do you purchase it? Do you sell it? Do you hold it? That's a financial decision. And then secondly, a decision around voting. Voting for matters properly coming before uh, shareholders for a vote. That might be a decision around the board of directors. Is there appropriate expertise? Are they executing um, on their oversight responsibilities? It might be other matters, uh, such as specific proposals um, that shareholders want to bring. But those are the two uh, very specific areas, financial decisions and voting decisions executed by a particular group of investors about an important topic. And so uh, the issue of climate, climate-related issues, runs through risk, the business model and its outlook, and the real proposal deals with materiality in that context. It also uh, deals with the context of risk management. How is management really addressing that risk? And then the third area is particular metrics, greenhouse gas metrics, for example, or information included in the financial statements that connect the dots between the governance, risk management, and results. So that's um, that's a bit of materiality and its its job in the context of the proposal. Sandy, anything that? Well, you know, I think that materiality is a really hard concept right now. I, I agree with everything that that Wes has said. Of course, I think that buying, selling, and holding are also voting decisions <laughs> with your feet. I think as I have um, heard, the, as somebody who wrote a paper in 2013 about materiality and financial materiality, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about materiality by a, a broader group of stakeholders that don't necessarily have sort of the same grounding in financial materiality, right? So I think we're in a process of edu- of educating, consolidating, um, coming to a consensus on what materiality means in the context of ESG, because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. 
and we've got to have sort of some consistency so that we can um, really reach a decision about what people are going to disclose. I, it, throughout this document, I, I see materiality as floating a little bit. So it's very, very um, specific and narrow and well-defined when it comes to the financial statements in the SX portion. Um, the SK portion, the SEC um, mentions the short-term, medium-term, long-term, and the notion of dynamic, which don't appear in SAB 99. And within the greenhouse gas emission section, it talks about disclosing scope three, if material, but wouldn't that be true with scope one and scope two as well? So there are a lot of different uses of that term, um, or they might be perceived as different. And so I think, you know, the process we're going through right now is one of coming to an understanding and putting in comments and expressing our views so that all these thoughts can be assimilated and integrated into the decision-making that the SEC makes on the proposal. So it's a really hard concept, a hard one to start the whole conversation off with, but, but an important overarching concept for sure. And one we'll talk about a little bit more when we go into the specific elements of the proposal. Yeah, well, let's, let's jump right in. Sandy, you go first. We'll talk a little bit about, you mentioned Form SK, you know, how this is going to be, how climate is going to be discussed outside the financial statements. We'll start with that, and then we'll go on to greenhouse gas emissions and the financial statements themselves. Uh, but let's start with SK. What is it and, and, and what's going on in this proposal around climate? So for us accountants and lawyers, SK is a pretty well-known thing who played in the corporate disclosure field. But basically, in very simple terms, it's the disclosures that are made outside of the financial statements in the front part of an SEC registration statement or a periodic filing. Um, and <clears throat> there's various descriptions of the business and risks and critical estimates and management discussion analysis and liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the SEC's proposal really touches on all of those. It talks about risks. It talks about the impact on the business strategy and operations and the governance as it relates to climate. And the SEC proposes that all of the discussion of climate be included in a separate section, which is something we advocated and supported in our comment letter to the SEC last, I guess, spring or summer, that we thought a separate section would, would be helpful. And, and I, I think we're going to embrace that at, um, because I think an integrated pulling together of the information is absolutely um, useful. Now, the SEC says that they're relying on the TCFD framework. That and they're, when it comes to greenhouse gas, they're relying on the greenhouse gas protocol. One of the things that we sort of have to ask ourselves is we're referring to documents or protocols or frameworks that are outside of the financial statement or outside of the SEC's sort of purview. What does that all mean? How do we manage that? Does it have the due process around it that we want? How will it be carried forward? Those are some of the things that we're noodling over and what those look like and how we consider those and, and what do they do to um, the proposal. As I said before, the SEC brings up the discussion of materiality and discusses the, the um, registrant discussing the short materiality in the short, medium, long term 
and whether it's dynamic. But when they use the term discuss, I'm struggling a little bit, not struggling, but wondering, what do they actually mean by that? Because we don't really discuss materiality. Like we don't discuss materiality in the financial statements. We don't discuss materiality per se in the MDNA. It's just what drives what gets discussed, but here they want you to discuss it. So that's one of the things I'm like, well, what does that actually turn out and, and look like? Some of the descriptions that I see in, in reading the SK section, if you will, are pretty straightforward. I mean, I think there's a lot of terms in there that will be used in the financial statements as well, climate-related, physical and transition risks. And I think if they were just included in the four part or the SK section, that'd be one thing. But including those and then using them in the financial statements where they're audited and, you know, we, we as accountants um, pain over the definition of terms and what does it mean and how do we use that and what do we do with it? You know, value chain, upstream, downstream, what does that mean in a particular industry? think there's some terminology there that's going to have to be sort of worked out across industries. In, in some industries, it's very clear and others, maybe not so much. I think that the one discussion in SK, so I, I view this as saying, well, SK tells me, give me the greenhouse gas emission. This is the barometer or thermometer, pun intended, if you will, of what you're emitting then discuss what you're going to do to manage it, lower it, impact your business, et cetera, and then describe the impacts it's having on your actual business in the financial statements. But that is, and we'll talk about that in a minute, that when it happens in the financial statements, maybe long after when you actually make a decision about what's going to happen. And I actually feel that what I call the meaty middle, which is a lot of what the SASB and ISSB ultimate metrics are, truly metrics that drive revenue or drive expenses. I feel like we have sort of a, a middle point that's missing in this disclosure. And because investors are worried about things way before they show up in some of the historical financial statements. And don't get me wrong, the financial statements include a lot of things that are forward-looking. But to me, some of the discussion of going from greenhouse gas emissions and, and discussing it to discussing what is the items, discussing, like in MDNA, the items that are affecting the financial statements, there's a big landscape between those two that investors are particularly interested in that I'm not sure is included in this proposal like I necessarily would like it to be included in this proposal. So anyway, I've said probably a lot there. I'll let, I'll let Wes do some talking, but that's sort of my 10,000 foot view of this section. Yeah. But before, before you jump in, Wes, one thing that made me think of one thing we've been hearing, Sandy, we heard in a conversation we had with some folks on a call last week and I've heard from other uh, places as well is uh, in the SEC proposal, at least at this time, doesn't ask for a breakdown by sector or it's not industry specific. Uh, and that's something like, for example, the European standard um, proposal that just came out actually last week 
does have that in there. Well, we should be we we should be careful there though because industry specific and industry based are different. That language is emerging and evolving, right? Right. The the SASB is industry based. Industry it is how you develop the standards rather than how you report on the information. So I completely agree with you. It's just there's some nuance around around that language that's emerging right now that that I think is particularly important. Yeah, agreed. And and who knows what that's going to look like, you know, when when the European rules get codified and what's it, what does the first disclosure look like a year from now, two years from now, with that industry language in it. But I'll, I'll stop, Wes. You know, uh, you can add your two cents. Just to add to a really important conversation, I think the disclosure of climate-related risk, much of which occurs today, sort of on us on a separate process that might be sitting on a corporate website, it might be in a response to an investor request. The point, Sandy, you made about the enhancement by integrating climate-related risk into management's perspective around the business, its outlook, the opportunities, is a critical step forward. The piece within the proposal that may need to be strengthened is the connection to the cadence of the business and management's role in that. For example, the connection in the short run over an annual operating cycle. How is management really thinking about the connection of risk to the next annual operating cycle? Or a medium framing. What about the capital expenditure cycle? or even a longer term horizon, the strategy of the business, the commitments that it's made, for example, a net zero commitment. The, so tying the discussion to the cadence of the business and, and therefore the internal operations of the business, whether it's an incentive program, a process, a control, a forecast, a forward-looking view of earnings capacity, each of those pieces, I think, uh, can and really should tie together. Wes, uh, I'll, I'll hit you up first on, you know, what's in the proposal about greenhouse gas emissions, scope one, scope two, scope three, uh, and your thoughts there. Yeah. So the proposal carries a requirement to disclose scope one and scope two disclosures for seven gases, seven types of greenhouse gases. Just a a slight nuance for very close readers on the proposal. The greenhouse gas protocol had six gases in its original protocol. And then later there was an additional one. That's how you get to seven. Mm -hmm. That's described in the proposal. It's important to get the completeness of scope one and scope two really set correctly. But then scope three, A lot of the discussion is around scope three, because scope three, by definition, sits beyond what a management team might own or control uh, directly. It's nonetheless really important. And so the proposal uh, requires it to be disclosed if it's material or if it's part of a commitment that the company has already made, which would imply that it is material. So for example, if there's a company that has made a net zero commitment to reduce greenhouse gas or the intensity of it over a particular time frame, and they've included scope three. Well, then uh, the proposal puts that on on the table as uh, 
being required disclosure. That this is an area where capturing the right data with the right process, the right controls, understanding what's being measured, understanding how it fits into the normal cadence of the business is really important. It's important to getting a wider sense uh, for the impact of the company on what can be measured and what is measured, and then communicating it uh, in uh, both registration statements, periodic filings, and the like. So this this is a, a key building block of metrics that have a wider set of impacts. It might be uh, financial-related effects um, to the points that, that Sandy was making. But this is this is one of those core building blocks. One of the questions that sometimes comes up, and, and Sandy made a similar point around uh, TCFD, is what is the relationship of those who prepare the greenhouse gas protocol and the SEC? What is that relationship? How should we think about maintenance or updates or even interpretations of the greenhouse gas protocol? Who gets the right to decide that? That's an important area, I, I think, where we'll need the system of interpretation of development to continue to mature. One, one of another areas within, um, within the securities laws and filings that may have overlapping attributes is for internal controls. COSO. COSO was set up as a technical group of experts uh, to help address a gap in that case, it, the adequacy, suitability of the design of internal controls. And they set out COSO as a framework by which companies could judge whether or not their system was effective or not. Greenhouse gas protocol has many of those attributes. And over time, the commission and uh, those who maintain COSO have developed a good working relationship, good clarity and transparency about how those rules are updated. I anticipate something yeah. similar will be necessary in this case too for greenhouse gas protocols. And I should have done this uh, up front. Uh, I just assume everybody knows scope one, scope two, scope three is. Uh, we often throw around too many acronyms and too much jargon. So I want to just define those for people. Scope one is uh, emissions from creating that widget, that product directly. Scope two is the, the, the energy you use for that process. And scope three is really everything else up and down the supply chain how your product is used. The classic example is cars, automobiles, all that exhaust coming out of our tailpipes is scope three. And so, the, and that's often usually the biggest part of the emissions is, is scope three for, for most companies. Sandy, anything we missed? And uh, we didn't, uh, I didn't mention, uh, uh, you may want to talk about uh, the assurance scope of the uh, scope one, scope two, three rule. Let's hold off on the assurance part for a second, I guess. Right. <clears throat> I agree with everything that Wes has said, but you know, as I think about I think about the greenhouse gas emission disclosure. I think that, you know, greenhouse gases are a thing, right? They are, it is a barometer, a, th a thermometer, if you will, of what the company is emitting, right? Greenhouse gases only become a risk once we decide they are, from a societal perspective, a company perspective, or another stakeholder perspective, something that we need to do something about, and then they become a risk to the business, and then we need to explain how they impact the business, what we're going to do about it, how they impact the financial statements and over time. I think what's really interesting though is like to the concept of materiality, the document says disclose scope one and scope two. It doesn't say if material, but in general, 
you would only ever disclose something if it's material, but it does say that related to scope three. And it says disclose scope three if material, but the really challenging part is that you got to collect it before you know if it's material, right? And the scope, the scope three really sort of opens up the boundaries of the financial statements or the boundaries of the document to look back into the supplier chain or look forward into the, um, into, you know, our, 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 who we sell our products, um, to, um, and, you know, I look at this, I look at the scope three and say the requirement to include this within public company financial statements is going to push the disclosure of scope one and scope two down into the private market. Because if you in any That's way touch, yeah. if you in any way touch a public company, congratulations, you've been scoped in, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so what does that mean? And how do you audit that, right? I mean, we can all remember, well, as as auditors can all remember the um, auditing the fair values of financial instruments, um, and then everything changed after the post after the financial crisis, and all of a sudden the pricing services who wouldn't give us any information all of a sudden decided they were going to do internal control reports and provide more information because they needed to, right? And so there's going to be, um, you know, as Wes says, there's going to be COSO and a framework, how people do this. But I think the broader implications is scope through means really kind of everybody, right? Because everybody touches a public company in some way or, or most in the, in the United States. So I think, you know, it's really um, challenging um, to, uh, to, 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 to capture that and, and to do something um, um, with it. I think, you know, what the, and, and Wes could probably do this in, in greater detail than I, but the, um, there's, there's provisions related to safe harbors over scope three, there's when they will be required, and then there is when assurance over them will be required. I would say that I completely agree that reliability is important. But um, I've, I've been told, uh, you know, when I go talk to fair value to the SEC and I said things like amortized cost is highly certain, but certainly irrelevant because it's the past price. They sort of are aghast. And I said, well, it's very reliable, but it's not very relevant. Right. So we have to balance as we go through this process relevance with reliability. And this what's what's I think unique about the greenhouse gas emission um, disclosure is that in this separate section, in the SK, right, because this, all the greenhouse gas emission disclosures are embedded within the SK and the front part of the section. We talk about it separately because that's how it's portrayed in the actual document, but that's where it will be. But this will be one of, if not the only number audited or having assurance, I should say limited and then reasonable assurance in the four part of that document. And while we have absolutely asked our members, the CFA charter holders, whether they want this information assured, and they have said yes, we haven't asked them the question about, do you want it assured when everything else in this section is not assured? And do you understand what that means, right? So we have a new, we have a new question to ask in contextualized, right? Um, is to get to the heart of, do you, do you want it? And I, I think, I think that the phase in allows for relevance to, um, uh, to, um, bring it in and reliability to increase over time, but it gets back to my original number fact concept at the beginning of relativity, right? 
is this the single most important number in the four part of the document? And I'm, I'm using that sort of as an extreme and asking myself that question because it will be unique, I think, in that regard. And I'm not sure that everyone, my surprise in coming and doing this job is the degree of which investors have differing understandings of the degree of what um, assurance is done over the four part of a document. Some have a very good understanding. Some think it's the same as the financial statement. Some think there's none at all. Some want management to just tell us as much as they can, see how far they can go, right? Um, so there's a lot of, there's, I think there's some, this is where we CFA Institute like need more time to really ask these thought provoking questions um, of members to, uh, to get them the relative um, importance, elicit the relative importance of the information for them to do their securities analysis. That's my sort of um, overarching things I'm noodling about in, in this section as, as you and I both go through it, Matt, as we're doing each day. Yeah. Could, could, could I just chime in on, on that point? Like I, it, it's, it's such an important and powerful point, Sandy, that, that you make. There's, there's two attributes, I guess, that, that I've been thinking about as well. Um, and, and the first is a lot of the information, this isn't exclusively true, but a lot of the information in the fore part of, of the document will manifest itself with a specific financial effect in the future. If you think about backlog, for example, or commitments and contingencies, those are all financial numbers that have the discipline of, of being concluded on in the financial statements. And, and that helps in um, tying back to a financial system. Greenhouse gas disclosures is more of a statistical metric, which um, impacts um, risk and opportunities that has a financial effect, effect but it's indirect. And, and so that's why as, as a measure of reliability, an outside check can really raise the confidence in it. So that's, that's, one, that's one concept. The second concept that, that I've been thinking about is really reflecting on um, over time, what um, what financial information uh, went through in order to be seen as uh, useful and reliable in in moving share price. It wasn't until the '60s where there was a statistical uh, correlation between financial information like net income and share price movement. And there there are really two attributes that that underpin that. One is the availability of information, investors having the confidence that they have the right information, it's a complete package, tells the story, it's available. And then the second is that it's reliable, it's sufficiently reliable on which to make a financial decision. And financial statements sort of went, went through that, uh, that process of maturing um, in order to um, gain the confidence of the market. I see ESG information more broadly or climate information more specifically as going through that process um, 
of both relevance, uh, your point, Sandy, very important point, relevance, do I have all of the available information? Is it relevant? But then do I have confidence in it sufficient uh, to base an investment decision? And that, that's why, that's why I, I think the proposal does a really good job of laying out the contours of not only where we are today, but also what the information set could be in the future. That, that, that's a great point. A great to step back and look at the historical context. Uh, I always make the joke uh, with people in the ESG world that, you know, we've had double entry accounting for a couple hundred years now, and we're still arguing over you know, the details of it. So be a little patient on this ESG information, you know, push as far, you know, push to get it right and get it better and get it be as good as it can, but have a little humility and patience and let, let's, let, let's get there. Uh, can, well, I, can I add one thing there? I, I, and I, sure. I agree with everything that's, I think that's, I agree with everything that's been said, but the one thing that I, <clears throat> I didn't maybe necessarily fully appreciate until I had this job was the degree to which the, the investors and the market has to push um, to get the information that is necessary, right? So I agree on the greenhouse gas emission as a metric. Um, some could argue that's really the impact metric, right? If we want impact materiality, right? If you say, is this, is this, um, because until I do something about it, it's not, or I'm required to do something about it, is it really financially relevant, right? And then we've got what's in the financial statements, right? But the market is always pushing management to give them what they perceive as being relevant, right? So as I, in our comment letter last summer, I said, we need an evolution, not a revolution. And we'll talk about the financial statements in a, in a minute. I view, I view that as a bit of a revolution, but the evolutionary part I feel is, is a bit missing. It is these, it is this qualitative, it's like greenhouse gas emissions, the qualitative discussion of risk and strategy and governance. And then we hang out over here in the financial statements. But there's all these things that investors need to know that are going to drive revenue and drive um, the um, costs and drive capital expenditures, which is where the SASB's metrics have been, right? And, and that the ISSB, I, I feel like that meaty middle is not here. And I think it's really important to driving, to creating this evolutionary process that helps me connect the words of the strategy, which if you look closely in the discussion of SK, it says greenhouse gas metrics, discuss greenhouse gas metrics and discuss the financial statements. It doesn't discuss the drivers. It makes um, in numeric terms, right? And that's really what, if investors are going to shape that they actually need. And my question is, as I look at this, is that, well, hmm, some of that people are already doing in sustainability reports. So am I going to have to go over to the sustainability report to get that information that drives the metrics? Or will that be in here? And how do I put that puzzle together? Because that to me is, again, my meaty middle. It's telling me what's going to drive my cash flows in the future, whereas the financial statements are telling me what's driven my cash flows so far. That's where I'm trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together and say, do we have everything we need or how are we going to put this? How are we going to put this whole thing together? 
as, as I look at that. It's a bridge to the financial statements. Wes and I were on a call a few, I don't know, it's probably a month and a half, two months ago now. And I think one of the things that accountants don't um, always see, having been an accountant, is that a lot of things, um, the market reacts to a lot of things that aren't in the financial statements. And what investors don't always see is that a lot of things don't make it into the financial statements until after they've become financially value relevant, right? And those circles overlap at points and they don't at others, right? And in this, I think we are in that process of trying to build them and, and bring them together. But we may need some more metrics in here that help us connect this big greenhouse gas number to the financial statements and how it's a driver of performance. But just these are Sandy Peters views. They're not CFA's views yet. <laughs> it, it, Sandy, those are powerful, powerful points and, and messages. Well, like I, I love the the meaty middle. You, you know, I was um, looking at uh, investor uh, decks uh, over the weekend. Some companies separate out the, uh, the so-called green assets from their legacy assets. Uh, maybe it's an industrial company and they're investing in um, electric uh, as a, a power source versus uh, versus you know um, gas powered or diesel powered. Separating out the portfolio of assets as a basis of segmentation adds to that meaty middle exactly to your point. I might have a different pricing strategy. I might have a different R&D strategy. I might have a different CapEx profile. And the market probably applies a different multiple uh, on different pieces of that business. Um, and, and so it's that meaty middle, I, I love your term, that, that really connects climate as a topic to the management strategy that's responding to that topic. Um, and then, and then um, ultimately financial effects flow from there. I think that's actually a great segue to the next topic, Matt. I know we're kind of getting short on time here. I wanted to get to the financial statements uh, before we have to let Wes go. So Wes, uh, I'll let you go first, uh, your thoughts on, on the financial statements and climate and what we, what we should be looking for. Sure. I, this this is a piece of the proposal that I, I especially think is well positioned because it reflects integration. We talked a lot about the importance of quality and relevant information. Um, we also talked about the need for integration of climate as a risk to the business, the outlook, and then ultimately the financial effects. You, you know. Uh, CFOs and businesses, uh, from time to time on an ad hoc basis, they'll have a non-gap reconciliation with reconciling items for maybe it's a flood, maybe it's um, additional expenses, et cetera. This puts it into a much more systematic approach uh, so that investors can get a sense for uh, the financial effects associated with a particular risk. If you think about the financial statement content today, um, we have risk-related information for financial risk. Might be credit, might be interest rate, might be currency. We also have it for commodities, but we don't have it for environmental other than 
contingencies where, where there's a realized exposure. This is that next step in terms of the long list of risks where there's sufficient maturity in understanding the nature of the risk, its structure, and the way it impacts businesses, and then contributes to measurement, measurement of the effect um, on the financial information. This is where I, I anticipate there are a number of interpretive questions around measurement, but interpretive questions, we have systems, we have groups, we have fora to um, address those, reach common understandings, to promote comparability in the preparation of information. But this is an area where I think the proposal does take us forward um, in adding to the relevance of financial reporting content. I agree with that. The challenge for me is, like, politically, if, if I, I'm always, and we're CFA Institute is always the organization, it's like, oh my God, they ask for everything, right? And, and disaggregation, and, and I look at this and say, if I support 1% for every financial statement caption, why can't I get a better cash flow? Why can't I get a better segment information? And all these things we've been asking for, for years, years, decades, actually, right? And so while I completely get it and agree, like politically, you know, the challenge we always have with the FASB is they'll say to me, you need to tell me exactly how you're going to use this in the model. And I'll be like, I don't, I don't have anything right now. So I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do with the information because you haven't given me anything. I don't know exactly what cell I'm going to put it in, but I can broadly tell you that this is value. This is a true risk. It's value relevant. And I've got some decision-making to make around it. Right. I think the, the discussion of the terminology around climate related and physical risks and all these things is going to be important. I mean, everything's going to have to be tagged to get to this 1%, right? Um, disaggregation is, 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 is super important. The connection to the financial statements, I think, is absolutely um, important. But I'm not sure that some of these are truly like the FES or the, not the FES, but the SECs call some of these metrics. I'm like, mm, I think they're really sort of financial statement elements, right? They're elements of lines of a financial statement. And when I look at this to tie it back to my discussion of the meaty middle, what I feel like I need as an investor is not like a footnote that says it's this much of each line item. I need those line items discussed and explained in the context of the conversation that's had about how greenhouse gas emissions are being managed and my risk and my strategy. And maybe that'll make its way to the front part of the document, but I sort of need it relative to the biggest projects or endeavors or um, strategic imperatives that the company has taken. So I know how, how to make sense of this information is really um, what I'm trying to figure out. How do I get this? Absolutely 100% agree linking it to the financial statements is important, but how do I get this explained and communicated in a way that's decision useful? Because that's really what I think that when I look at this, I need to be able to explain is, is it decision useful? 
is it predictive, right? Back to the meaty middle. The meaty middle is about being predictive and being just as useful. I worry a little bit that some people may create a whole series of non-GAAP measures around this. These are always things that we think about. But that's really what I'm trying to get to in that discussion of the financial statement um, information. This probably, to me, is one of the most controversial elements of this proposal um, because companies are really looking at this and saying, wow, how do I go about um, doing this? But I absolutely 1000% agree that we need a linkage to the financial statements because that's where assurance shows up. That's where what management told me, I proved that it actually happened. Um, but I think this, this middle part about showing me what happened and then what might happen and then telling me it did happen are, um, are parts that I got to put together in my head as we write, as we finalize our comment letter. Sandy, maybe, maybe to just, just chime in on, on that reinforcing the point. The, the connection to the financial statements um, helps us in using those financial statements to anticipate cash flows. Where today, a, a lot of the anticipation around climate exposure is incorporated into discount rates, but not cash flows. And this, it, it's hard. No doubt it's hard. No doubt it's hard for companies to prepare it, but that's the, that's the vision where um, by establishing a, a greater conversation and the discipline of information in the footnotes, we can better anticipate uh, the impact on cash flows. I agree. I agree. A lot of these cash flows, though, will be in operating, and we have an indirect method on that, right? And so, Such a great point. so while I can definitely see. Um, I'll be able to see if this 1% on the financing cash flow and on the investing cash flow, ever, will I see the 1% related to every change in going from net income to operating cash flows? I don't know, but there's a whole lot of R&D in there, right? And R&D related to this. And that's what I want to get. Um, that's what I'm trying to um, get get out of this. So I a thousand percent agree um, on the um, linkage and, and predicting the cash flows. I just feel like the segregation of the cash flows between operating, investing and financing isn't, doesn't, isn't always as helpful to investors um, as it needs to be. And there's going to be a whole lot of just plain old operating that we need the cash flows on to really see over time this disclosure in the financial statements, what the trend is. So time will tell. <laughs> this, is a this is a first on the podcast. We've actually run out of time. Uh, I want to thank Wes and thank Sandy. Uh, and if, if having uh, accountants talk to you about climate disclosures, you haven't gotten enough of it, stay tuned and make sure you read uh, our comment letter and PwC's comment letter. Uh, on the SEC proposals. Uh, and maybe over the summer, we'll talk about uh, you know, the international side of things as well, because that proposal from the ISSB is coming up uh, due in a couple months as well. So thank you again, guys. I'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Wes. Mm -hmm.